Hello, I'm your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 29, brought to you by acmescience.com. On today's episode, I'm joined by Edmund Harris, visiting professor of mathematics at the University of Arkansas. We discuss his rather public job search, a conspiracy designed to corrupt people into mathematics, and the similarities between mathematics and art. Here we go. So, uh, with me on Strongly Connected Components today, I have Edmund Harris, a visiting professor of mathematics at the University of Arkansas. Hello, Edmund. Hello. Big reason why I have Edmund Harris on with me today was a really interesting blog post that he did uh, not too long ago, and it was a essentially a public a job application letter without necessarily a specific intended recipient where he went over the different talents uh, within mathematics as well as outside of mathematics that he has. And it's, it's very interesting because it's very much sort of a list that you would expect from a Renaissance mathematician, uh, not as a uh, Renaissance as in Renaissance man, not as in the time period. And it covers, uh, say, the areas of research that he does with in ge- uh, geometry and tilings, as well as his interest in history and culture of mathematics, his ability to speak about it in public, to teach it, to make art uh, with it, as well as to make actual objects from it. So I was wondering, what made you have this idea to uh, publish this list publicly online instead of going through the typical application process? Well, I am doing the physical application process as well, but um, not having as much success as I'd like or, or wanting to try other options. And the problem you have at the moment is that there aren't that many jobs available, and so the quality of people applying for them is incredibly high. I also thought that I have a wide range of talents that are not necessarily as useful for getting purely academic jobs, so there might be other options out there. And so I Actually, one of the comments I got back from a few people about it was that it missed out the key point, which was, what do I, you know, what do I want? What do I want to do? Um, but actually, if I, well, the things I know I want to do, I can apply for directly. That I don't need to do a process like this. So I was thinking, let's find out whether the, you know, what people might be interested in someone with the, the slightly strange collection of, of skills and whether there's some interesting opportunities to, to uh, work on that. I realize that you won't necessarily want to uh, directly talk about what I'm about to ask, but have you had any interest so far because, or from actual potential jobs from posting this online? Yeah, there's a few things that come up and, and some interesting, sort of strange options. So to, yeah, quite a few emails about it. So both people just offering words of support and also people giving more specific job offers. Although it feels like it's the sort of thing where I'm getting a few emails from people saying, well, it sounds like you're doing something interesting or you could do something interesting and I'll keep you in mind because there might be something that you can do coming up later. So I, I think that the main value seems to have been it's got my name out, but 
just in the specific jobs, there have been a few things that have come up which might, might be interesting. Unfortunately, nothing that is certain enough that I, I want to discuss it, as, a, as you say. Yes, of course. Now, you are currently at the University of Arkansas as a visiting professor, and one of the classes that you teach is Math uh, 2033, uh, which you have described as a conspiracy designed to corrupt people into mathematics. And I was wondering, actually, just what? I, I have no good question for that. It's just, it sounds very interesting. I was wondering if you could speak to it. Well, I think in many ways, the reason I'm in Arkansas is the ability to teach that course. One of my academic mentors, Hein Goodman Strauss, is the, who sort of founded it and it sort of set it up as his, his creation. And it does, the key things are two ideas. The first is to actually have the final course for non-math majors be a capstone-style course. If people are not going to take another math course again, it should be a course that somehow says, this is to conclude your mathematical career, gives some idea of the things they're missing, and just sort of gives them a general idea about mathematics. I mean, in some cases, the final mathematics course people can take is pre-calculus, which is ludicrous simply by the name of that course. Um, you're learning a whole load of things that you never connect into any, anything that will, is really useful. You've just got a whole load of subjects that you need to know before you go on to do calculus. And what we do is, oh, I've mentioned two ideas. The other idea is to get students to take more initiative with what they learn. And because we have the, the philosophy that we are going to introduce them to a whole range of topics, there isn't the same need that we have to teach things that every student will learn. And so it gives the space to the students who want to get fascinated in some tiny detail and go off and develop a project on that. And last semester, the sort of projects we had were students who built a two-foot-high hyperboloid out of chainmail. We had a 15-foot-long perspective illusion house built. Uh, and, and various other things, including a, hex, uh, a, a hexayurt and other, other activities. And a lot of that came from the students, or at least some idea came from the students and then working with us. So it's those twin ideas of firstly doing a capstone for, for mathematics, for non-math majors, and secondly having a course where the students have to have the responsibility to really create their own material for, for the assessment. They're not just told what to do. In terms of the sort of things we, we do in the lectures is we just throw a huge range of topics at them from hyperbolic geometry and Gödel's theorem to fourth dimension. I mean anything with pictures is always quite fun but um, you know getting them to to make Mobius strips. It's shocking how how many students come through the school system never having made a Mobius strip and things like that uh, just to try to get them active and change their attitude. Now that does sound very different than your typical mathematics course. I mean, it's it's just just sounds different, especially in that it doesn't seem to be very focused around numbers. Now, you and I both know that mathematics is not actually a numerical thing in general, but that sounds very much like you're trying to get them to think in a mathematical way. And that's, that's another thing that you wrote up in this list of things that you can do is you try to teach people to 
think mathematically, and I was wondering if you go a bit more into what exactly mathematical thinking is as opposed to, say, being able to get the results by, you know, just plugging and chugging as a lot of people, especially non-math majors, are taught in their final course. Yeah, well, I think like many mathematicians, I have real problems when it comes to dealing with numbers, so I try and avoid them as much as possible. My arithmetic skills, especially my mental arithmetic skills, are awful. But I, I think, you know, as, as you say, if I have to do a calculation, I can just sit down and it won't be particularly fast, it won't be particularly pretty, but I can do it. And a lot of that comes because I, I have, have the mental skills to actually understand what's going on behind a calculation and work out what's happening. So if I don't remember the rules or if I don't know the rules, I can just make them up as time goes on because I have the intuition of what's happening. And to me, mathematics has always been this process of abstraction. It's a very powerful idea because when you start to think about things abstractly, you can think about more than one situation at the same time. You don't have to count cows and sheep separately. You can just have cows and sheep and use one counting system to count both together. Actually, Doran Zielberger takes this a, a step further and says that when we identify levels of intelligence, we start off, we, we basically look at how much abstraction animals can, can deal with. We say a, a dog is more intelligent than a cow because a dog can, con can work out more abstract concepts. A monkey or an ape might be more intelligent than a dog because, again, they can deal with even greater abstraction. He then extrapolates this and says, so mathematician is the, the step above human. <laughs> mathematicians can deal with, with that, that greater level of abstraction. I don't think that, I mean, Doran Zielberger is someone known for his controversial opinions and his desire to stir up debate. So it's not necessarily a, a well, I'm not claiming this is a fact, but I think it's an interesting idea that the ability to think abstractly enables us to deal with situations in a way that we can't if we're locked into to concrete thinking. So even though as a mathematician I actually prefer more concrete areas of mathematics, it is the, the abstract that I'm trying to get people to think about and to, you know, to think about these sort of general ideas and to think around ideas. Things like game theory are very, very good models for that because of that, again it's taking some sort of fairly concrete situation you can see a real world model out and then analyzing it. I actually wonder whether the reason algebra is such a sticking point to many many students is that it's the first time that they have to base an abstraction on top of another abstraction. So arithmetic is an abstraction on the idea of counting and the fact you can you know, do it on your fingers or you can count sheep. But algebra really is an abstraction on top of arithmetic. So if you haven't really got a solid understanding of arithmetic because you did the, uh, I can't remember what you called it, plug and chug method on, on, on arithmetic question, you're not going to be able to get algebra because you have to do an abstraction on top of another abstraction. No, that, that makes very clear sense, actually. And... Now, one of the things that you do work with is a very abstracted area of mathematics that is still managed to be able to at least visually model very clearly, and that is uh, tilings. 
Now, I, I tried to cover this in uh, the sister podcast, Combinations and Permutations, a few episodes ago, but it came off terribly because I don't actually know that much about tilings. And I was wondering if you could just fill me into what I should have spoken about in order to get, say, my other grad student guests interested in talking about what I have a feeling is probably a very interesting area that I just don't understand. Well, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of tilings. I mean, mainly because I, they allow me to make pretty pictures. And I, I'm open about a lot of my motivation to, to, towards doing mathematics is because I'm a frustrated artist who can't draw. And so I need something that can generate pictures. With, with tilings, the modern research in tilings basically focuses around a thing called aperiodic, aperiodic shapes. And this was, these are quite, quite magical, really. In, in, the, in the 60s, Berger found a set, of, a set of thousands of tiles, but he found a set that could tile as far as you, you want. You could tile the infinite plane and yet would never simply repeat. You didn't get a periodic structure appearing, appearing from that. And this was really, really counterintuitive because the, the, the structure he has is, is incredibly highly ordered, but it's not periodic. And various people played around with it. On the, on the one hand, it, it's regard, it was regarded very much as recreational mathematics. On the other hand, the sort of people who were playing in this recreational mathematics included John Conway, Donald Muth, and Roger Penrose. So on, it's, a, it's fascinating to me that on one hand, it was an area that didn't have much general respect or was regarded as recreational and just a bit of fun. On the other hand, some of the people who chose to have their fun in this area include some of the most creative mathematicians in, you know, who are around. And Roger Penrose came up with the famous Penrose tiling, which had just two shapes. And so you can, and from my point of view, it, it's nice because you can actually physically make copies of those shapes. And if you want to, to teach this to, to children, you just make a whole load of shapes and you put them in front of them and you stand, stand back. The problem comes in over-engagement of the ch children rather than under-engagement. It can be hard to tell them anything else rather than them looking bored out of the window. So with the Penrose tiling, you have two shapes, and they all fit together, and you can tile for, forever, and yet however far you go, you never find a patch that can just fit onto itself and tile periodically like a square could. And to, to me, that's... The, uh, that's a real magical property that needs to be investigated further. Um, I think if you look at the history of some of these sort of weird ideas that come, or simple ideas that come out of tiling, but are regard, you know, sort of dealt with, you then look at how, where, where they end up in terms of pieces of mathematics. Um, you know, a classic example is the work of Coxeter, who was taking concrete geometric problems and plugging them in right to the heart of group theory, which is incredibly abstract area. So my general feeling is that these problems of looking at how shapes fit together really reveal deep properties of, of, of something fundamental that we can then use to, to generate mathematics and, and links into the sort of more abstract general 
form of, of mathematics. You mentioned in there that one of the reasons why you do this is because you feel that you're a bit of a an artist who can't draw, frustrated artist, I believe is what you said. And while that may have been true at one point, it doesn't seem that that may be as true anymore since you do seem to create a lot of art, specifically mathematical sculpture. Now, I was wondering what sort of path led you, or what sort of things led you down the path to start to use, say, laser cutters and routers to start making these very beautiful and very um, specific types of sculpture that are based off of mathematical themes? Well, my, my path into making art which sort of come, comes first, but I think I need to tell that story before I get onto the machine, is that I was doing my PhD, and I was really enjoying making the figures for, the, for, for that, and getting quite frustrated that I had to, you know, the, the absolute importance in making a figure is the information content, and the actual aesthetics of it are less important. So if you have a choice between something that's more informative and something that's prettier, you always have to choose the more informative version. And so I was sort of starting to get frustrated with this. Then I did my, during my first postdoc, I was at Queen Mary, University of London, and talking to the head of department. And he said what they might want some artwork for the the, uh, lobby. And so I sort of took that away and basically in a week, came up with quite a large, about seven or eight different pieces that had come from what had been bubbling under, and suddenly I was free to choose pure aesthetics over information content. And so that sort of got me thinking about making art. The problem then is that computer-generated art, even sort of fractal designs and so on, leaves me slightly cold. It feels like it, it's too, too pure, in a sense. The, the, the aesthetics don't quite work um, compared to painting or to, to manufactured pieces. So when, as soon as I started coming across laser cutters and, and things like that, which I, I did actually here in Arkansas uh, on, a, on a visit, um, we went to the architecture school and looked at their laser cutters. It was suddenly there was a way of taking the, the computer, well, using the computer to get the mathematical control, but then having ways of turning that into sort of real objects that have some, in their process, lose some of that absolute perfection. Um, it's the, the Japanese aesthetic that something that's slightly flawed is, is more perfect than something that is completely perfect or more beautiful, certainly. And so for me, the power is that they were machines that could take my ideas and communicate them very quickly into physical objects. As soon as I started thinking about that, I, I realized that the value of this was not just for art, but actually back into the mathematics, because you can create objects that help gain intuition. And I think, well, just we've been talking about earlier about how mathematics, well, is not just plugging numbers into formulae. And a lot of that is, is about building intuition. And I think as a subject as a whole, we often underestimate that the role that intuition can play, how your understanding so much comes not from 
following through the, the proof. The reason you can find the proof is because you develop, you know, you work on these things to the obsession that you start developing an intuition of how they behave, and then you can make up the right rules or you know or or, or the right series of formal steps to actually prove something. And you you know a lot of areas that especially in geometry you talk to the geometers and they're constantly showering you with visual illusions and, and, and imagery and hand-waving in the positive sense. And then you read their papers and none of that's there. You know, in the paper you simply have the formal argument that comes out of it. So it, it can be obvious how, how a student coming across that paper thinks of it as being this incredibly tough, rigorous subject because they're seeing the output, which isn't really representative of the process. And playing with physical objects, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly name-check Zone Tool um, because it's just a magical system. The, the amount of intuition you get about how three-dimensional and higher-dimensional geometry can work from, from just playing with Zone Tool it, it, it is immense. Just from that sort of argument, it, would you be uh, someone who'd be willing to say that uh, mathematics and creativity are actually very closely linked, at least a lot more linked than uh, people, uh, the public in general, believes that it is. I would say that it was, it's possible to do mathematics uh, in a, a purely formal sense without having any creativity, but that's like saying it's possible to put paint onto a piece of paper without any creativity. So actually, be able to, to, to think and use mathematics to, to the full power. It's a very creative process, yeah. You've done art shows. Uh, you've done a few, at least there's a few listed on your CV. And I was wondering what sort of reaction you get from the art community as opposed to the mathematics community when uh, you actually do display your art at a show. It depends a little bit. There's a, there is a... I was going to say small, but I think it's actually quite large. There's quite a large bias against uh, mathematics and science within a portion of the artistic community. They're, they are seeing that stereotype of, of mathematics that we were discussing. And I think the other problem that a lot of people in art have is that when mathematicians or scientists start doing art, they don't respect the, the intellectual integrity of the artistic community. So they, you know, someone will produce a fractal picture that looks quite pretty and then say, oh, of course, this is art, without having engaged in the sort of intellectual processes that they might have done, that an artist would have gone through. I mean, art, is, is, uh, in many ways, is an, another intellectual activity it's pursued using different intellectual tools, but most artists sort of analyze their process and analyze their work in a very intense way. In many cases, in the same way that a mathematician would obsess and analy obsessively analyze their own work. And so I think that the bias comes partly from the, the fault of the, the people in the arts community not realizing what mathematics is, but also from people who are doing math art who are not realizing what art is. That said, I've, I have in many cases managed to bridge that. And I think particularly in the, the constructivist 
art movement sort of coming out of well Russia and and Holland in the the beginning of the 20th century and then having a a version in England in the 60s that had local impact rather than, than global impact and still has many people engaged with. I mean, I wrote on my blog a piece called The uh, Impossible Quest, I think, which was about the, the similarities between constructivist art and mathematics. And the, uh, again, slightly controversial thesis there was that mathematics was actually a part of constructivist art because it was looking at the same questions. I guess I should say what constructivist art is. Constructivist art comes out of abstract art. It's the realization that at some point you start with the reality and you start to abstract away from that. So you, you go through Impressionism and you end up, you know, sort of get to something like Picasso. And at some point, what you're drawing is very, the link back to what you started with is, is incredibly long. And so you say, well, maybe let's start without a real point and start from the, the, start from the rules, from the construction, and build up from there. And so you have artists like, um, well, obviously, uh, Mondrian and also Max Bill, who, who, you know, they're, they're, the point of their work is starting from purely abstract structures and building something real from the abstract rather than abstracting something from the real. And that is very close to how we might think about mathematics. The, the other course I'm teaching at the moment is on history of math. And we're studying um, Plato's Ghost, which is a book by Jeremy Gray. And it studies the mathematics at the beginning of the 20th century as a modernism movement. And actually, to me, the connections between what was happening in the world of art with this development of constructivist art and what was happening in mathematics is really nicely parallel because just as in the art world, you were sort of getting beyond abstraction from the real and starting to build up from nowhere, in mathematics, you have the change from the world of Gauss or Euler, where you are finding the rules of nature that are, that are mathematic, mathematical, and instead saying, what are the foundations of mathematics, the great you know, quest for the foundations that ends in, in Gödel, and seeing mathematics as the pure abstraction that then has this famous quote by Wigner, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. You have models that you can then apply to the world rather than models you took from the world. And that reversal of direction, I think, is very interesting. Uh, I think I've slightly wandered off the initial question. Oh, no, no, that's fine. It's all been quite interesting. Now, you mentioned in, in your answer there, your blog, which is maxwelldemon.com. We should actually plug the name itself for it because it is a quite fun read as I uh, already knew but know a little bit better now I've gone over some of the old posts and one of the posts you had was about the responsibility of mathematicians I think that this ties in quite well with the uh, last answer and um, and it was in it it was talking about people in general thinking that mathematics is too esoteric and also that mathematicians have done 
very little to change that. It, it, say tying into yeah, uh, math when it's used in areas outside of mathematics. A lot of times people look to first apply their own research instead of asking if or can or will mathematics actually help. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps then say a little bit about what you feel a responsibility, the responsibility of a, of a modern mathematician truly is then. Well, I think in some ways the, the business model of academic mathematics, in a sense, has come to rely on that obscurity. You look at the people involved in, in many of the advanced areas, and they sort of protect their own little corner of funding by not making it too obvious how to do it. You know, there's not a pressure to make mathematics clearer. In fact, if anything, there's a pressure to making it more obscure. Because if you make it clear, you do yourself out of a job. And unfortunately, this sort of the process of making things more complicated has become, well, it's kept a certain thing alive, but not allowed mathematics to grow in the ways it could. And I think the main responsibility that I believe mathematicians need to take on is the willingness to basically say mathematics is not hard. Mathematics is the bits of the world that we can understand incredibly clearly. And to do that, it has to be incredibly simple. And to make mathematics as simple as possible, and to take these powerful ideas and powerful theorems that uh, the Fields medalists and the other cutting-edge mathematicians are, are hacking away from the surface, and actually put some sort of chain in place that takes those from the, the coalface of mathematics up to the surface. In doing so, some of the things that mathematicians can do will probably be transferred, because if you can make mathematics, mathematical concepts easier to understand, then you know, a biologist doesn't need a mathematician on board to do the mathematics. They can understand the concepts and use them in their own work. And I think the, you know, the, the, the real problem with this sort of model of the mathematical priesthood did come from the world of finance, where you got the, had the, the general people in finance who were not mathematically illiterate, and, you know, it's very hard to get are in finance without having at least very good numeracy, and that, that's a skill that well, far fewer people have than we think of. But they didn't have a sophisticated understanding of mathematics. They regarded the quants as a black box that they could throw things at and get answers back. And because they didn't understand exactly the, the nature of the information that they were getting back, they tended to regard it possibly with, with more, more faith or in a different way than if they'd actually, you know. The classic example, and I remember discussing this with colleagues long before things crashed, was the fact that there was a single model of risk. And the idea that most of the banks had was that if we have a single model of risk, then everyone's safe because we're all using the same model of risk. This proved immensely successful for them. Because once you had a single model of risk, you could learn to game that system. And you could turn 
bad loans into AAA rated loans and so on and make a huge amount of money. I think in addition, they were correct in their assumption that if everyone was using the same system, they were safe because once when everything came down, a couple of banks crashed, but generally everyone got safe because everything was so linked into the same system of risk. Possibly with a greater understanding of mathematics, and this is putting, you know, I think putting too much faith in mathematics. I'm not sure it can fight completely against human nature. But with a greater understanding of mathematics and, and what's happening, you can think, well, actually, a better system might be to have lots of competing models of risk. And then instead of everyone doing well and then everyone doing badly, different people would do well and badly at different times. And then in the long run, you would get, well, as a result, you wouldn't have a system where you had to step in to save everything because if you didn't, everything would, you know, the whole thing would come down. And I think mathematicians and the, the ideas of mathematics do have some intuition and understanding of this sort of system. And we need mathematicians going out and fi finding ways that we can get that understanding into the people who have to assess these systems, into the people who, who look at these things and get that greater subtlety. I think in some ways it just comes down to communicating mathematical taste. So if, if there was a person who's just now becoming a mathematician, say at the end of their undergrad or in the beginning part of their graduate school career, what would you tell them would be the number one skill that they should have in order to stay relevant in sort of the changing academy as you see it? Well, the number one skill for me to, to, for someone to be developing is make sure that you can talk about your research to anyone you come across. That doesn't mean you give the same story to everyone. You should, in fact, you, know, you should be building several stories. But know the bold picture of your research that you can talk to somebody who, you know, you've just sat next to on the bus, you've said you're doing a math PhD, and instead of running in horror, they say, <laughs> oh, so, so what are you doing? Do you, can, you, can you explain it? You probably can't, which is the sort of things you, you often get. If you have a story then that you can give somebody, you know, that's the, that's the first level. Now, if, you're, you know, if, if someone was working in medicine and they might, I mean, studying the, the pathways of a certain protein that might lead to, to something, now they could then give a overall story. We're looking, you know, I, I work in medicine and we're trying to help mitigate the effects of this particular disease. We're trying to cure cancer. You can give that bold outward story. If you then talk to somebody who is a doctor, you might give a little bit more detail. You'd say what the particular disease was and how the protein pathway affects it. If you were talking to an expert, you'd then give the sort of chemical details of the protein and how you were going to inhibit it and, and, and whatever. In mathematics, a student should work on having those same stories. The story to the man on the street. The story to the um, scientifically educated man on the street, maybe. Somebody who is, has good general knowledge of, of, of science and maybe a bit of mathematics, but doesn't have 
any professional trade. Then the story for the mathematician, and finally the story for the fellow expert. And too often, especially at PhD level, the only story that anyone develops is the story to the fellow expert. And so they can't even talk to other mathematicians about what research they're doing in any clear or coherent manner, let alone to somebody without professional training. Now, I cannot say that I disagree with you at all on that. Uh, now, I have one final uh, question for you. Now, earlier you were talking about a, another mathematician who is uh, quite often uh, has very strong and is, uh, opinions and is very vocal about them. Well, that is something that could also be used to describe you, both with things that you write on your blog as well as some of the things that you write on Twitter. I was wondering what sort of reactions you get and how do you deal with some of the reactions that I'm sure some of your statements tend to draw out of people? Well, the funny thing is I, I never think of myself as being particularly controversial. And maybe that's just because I grew up as a, a good uh, English public schoolboy and you were encouraged to occasionally say things out of, out of line just because of the, that was the, the culture. But I mean, the main negative reaction I had was to, to the post that I did about looking at mathematical scales and putting out the idea that uh, one way to, that people starting their PhD might learn to develop their intuition about, about number is to go back, well, in particular about number, but about the basic ideas, is to go back and go over the real basic operations. And I put up a post that had a suggestion for that, as well as the basic idea, which was to start writing down your times tables. And actually, I, I, I'd stand by that, as, as I, I think people would get a lot more out of it than, the, than they suspect. It goes back to the importance of understanding arithmetic in order to understand algebra, the importance of understanding how numbers play to, together. If I was a mad scientist and had been tasked with the job of creating the next Ramanujan, I would get a large number of uh, children in and get them to start doing these sort of exercises, sort of almost meditative. The interesting reaction I got was lots of people had learned that mathematics was not number, but really hadn't gone further than that. You know, I had one person comment that this was not mathematics, and if I was a beginning PhD student and my professor gave this, I would feel that he didn't know what mathematics was. Although a bit later, the same person commented that mathematics was about equations. <laughs> uh, so had learned the first lesson, but hadn't, hadn't gone any further than that. And another person on Twitter commented that, that I was claiming that arithmetic is mathematics. And I would stand by that. Yes, I am claiming that arithmetic is mathematics. I think if you think that arithmetic is not mathematics, you're, you're, uh, you're in trouble. Uh, yeah, a, a, square, uh, a square is a rectangle, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind yeah. of that sort of argument. It, it goes further than that because I think, you know, somehow the funny thing is that understanding the integers comes back in so many places in in mathematics, you know, we, we have two basic launching points for mathematics, counting and shape. And, and 
you know, it really helps to understand counting better. If you look at the way the real numbers and the natural numbers and the integers arise in so many ways out of study of, of group theory and, 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 and study of fields, these things sort of come out very naturally as very fundamental objects. So I, I took issue to some of the people complaining about what I was saying, and I think they, they, were, they were missing my point. But I think that's the, that's the strongest negative reaction that I've had. And thanks for giving me a chance just to sort of argue back against them, I guess. <laughs> it, it's always nice to be able to argue against people when they're not also on the show. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I just want to thank you very much for bringing your opinions on to Strongly Connected Components. And I really hope that someone sees all of your really interesting, diverse talents and decides to give you the best job you could ever hope for. Thank you very much. So that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to leave any feedback about this episode or perhaps want to suggest a guest for the show, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. If you want to find out more about Edmund Harris, make sure to head on over to acmescience.com and look at the blog post for this episode where you'll find links to his public job application and his great Twitter and blog. The intro music is The Pie Song from Hard and Firm off their album Horses and Grasses. And the music I am talking over right now is from SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. This episode of Strongly Connected Components is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike License. So please feel free to cut out all the annoying parts where I'm talking and just leave Edmund's wonderful, informative, and interesting opinions. And I hope that you come back and listen to another episode of Strongly Connected Components next week. Next time, it's James Grime. Thanks for listening. <laughs>